So this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, and the title of the message this morning is Investigating the Transfiguration. The transfiguration of Jesus is an amazing event, and so I feel like we need to really investigate what took place here in this chapter. And, you know, when I was in high school, uh, back when we, when we got off our dinosaur and went to class, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I rode a horse and buggy, okay? Uh, but we had what we called journalism class. If you wanted to write on the newspaper in school, you had to take a journalism class first. Um, I believe that the majority of those reporting the news today have never taken a journalism class, okay? Because in a journalism class, you learn that when you're reporting something, that you are to stick to the facts, the facts of what took place. You need to be able to describe who was involved, what took place, where it happened, and when it happened. And you were not allowed to stick your opinions in a newspaper article. Now, once in a while, if you're a really good writer uh, on the school paper, then they would let you do an article, and that was with a, remember this, a byline. And when you saw that byline, you knew that that reporter was adding in their editorial to what the event was. And they were adding in their opinions. It was okay because you knew that. And so uh, you learn the difference between a news article and an editorial. I think that's pretty mixed up today. But we're going to approach this a little bit uh, in the way of investigating this event, the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark chapter 9. And first, we're going to look at it in an investigative way and, and, and the way that we would if we were going to do a news article because we want to know the facts of what took place here. Now, if you remember back in Mark 8, we saw that Jesus had begun to prepare his disciples for his eventual departing from them. Jesus had shown them the kingdom of God, and he'd done that by his teaching. He'd done it by miraculous deeds, and he'd done that by giving them the power to do some of those same miraculous deeds. And you remember that as we've gone through the book of Mark. But then he came to a point where he asked them a point-blank question. And that question was, who do you say that I am? Now, that was a critical question because if the disciples could not answer that question, then they would never be able to accomplish the mission that Jesus had for them. Then Peter, by the revelation of God, answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. That's all that that means in that term, the Christ. So there it was. After around three years of hanging out together, the truth was finally revealed. Jesus was the chosen one. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. However, the, the understanding that the disciples had of what that really meant, of what would take place when the Messiah appeared in Israel was quite different than what was going to take place. Instead of the Messiah overthrowing Rome and sitting on the throne of David, which, by the way, is what any good young Jewish male would be thinking at the time, Jesus says this to them back in Mark 8, verses 31, 32. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and after three days, rise again. Now, when we read this, we often don't really look closely at verse 32. If you, if you have it open there, look at that. Verse 32, it says, and he was stating the matter plainly. In other words, he wasn't speaking in parables anymore as he did earlier. He wasn't trying to hide anything. He was speaking it out. He was saying, this is what's going to happen. And he was speaking plainly to those disciples. Now, this is certainly not something the disciples wanted to hear. So Peter spoke up and began to rebuke Jesus. Well, you know how well that went, right? Uh, Peter, lesson number one, do not rebuke God, okay? And so uh, that didn't go over real well. But an interesting thing, then Jesus called the crowd to himself, not just the disciples, but the whole crowd that was there, and he made this incredible statement. So let's look at Mark chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now I want you to put yourself in their place. The whole crowd, not just the disciples. A lot of these people hadn't been hanging out with Jesus for three years. Some had. Some had followed him everywhere. But there may have been people that maybe this is the first time they'd heard Jesus speak. And they heard him make this statement. Imagine, what does he mean by this? You know, when you get excited, they might not even have noticed the word some. They may have just heard the rest. And they might have gotten really excited thinking that, well, Jesus must be proclaiming that he's soon going to throw off the oppression of Rome and that he's going to set up his kingdom and this earth soon or even immediately. And that they would see Israel once again rule with the glory that they had at the time of Solomon. That's what they were looking forward to. They might be believing that the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Daniel and the others and, and thinking this is going to be fulfilled, all those things that those guys talked about. It's going to happen. That might have been what they were thinking. Or they might have been thinking, as so often that happened, who is this guy? Who is this man that makes these bold statements? And they might have been just thoroughly confused. Well, let's read on, verse 2. Six days later, now I want to clear something up right off the bat because we always have these people that look for these little things in the Bible. And it seems like I always get one, doesn't it, when every time I'm teaching here. And, and they're going to go, well, wait, wait, wait. In Luke, it says eight days. The Bible, you can't trust it. Oops, boy, I smacked my thing there. All right, you can't trust the Bible. Look, it has all these mistakes in it. Well, once again, you know, this is not a mistake. Uh, it's, it's pretty easily uh, figured out when you think of the fact that oftentimes when we talk about, when you're talking about an event, let's say that you're describing an event that took place, you might include the day of the event, uh, and then you may include the day that you started out. And so it's about eight days is actually the term. And so it's just that in describing the event, the day that that statement was made and the day that this event took place are included, so that's eight days instead of six. 
And of course, in Mark's, he's just saying six days. He doesn't include those two days, six days later. Six days later, or eight days later, if you include the two, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And if you're interested in this, um, some of the old uh, commentaries might say Mount Tabor. That's probably not correct. Um, it's probably Mount Hermon because that was closer to Caesarea Philippi. By the way, some of those sites that come from early commentaries, and apparently when you go to Israel, which we're hopefully we're going to be doing here in 2018, um, you know, a lot of the sites that are, you know, they say this happened there, that happened there. You can't always trust it because it was done by, um, well, from what I understand, some of the sites were chosen by Constantine's mother who just walked around to these sites and said, I feel like this is where it happened. Okay? And that's why we want to dig in and investigate to find out really where they are. So Mount Hermon was much closer to Caesarea Philippi where they were coming from. Most likely there. That was the high mountain. Well, Luke informs us that there was a reason that he took the boys with him. The three boys. I say that because oftentimes they act like little boys, didn't they? Not grown men. But they were pretty young. But he took the boys with him and he took them for a purpose and that was to pray with him. Now, typically, when he took the boys to pray with him, what did they do? They usually nodded off and fell asleep. They didn't hang with Jesus very well and stay up all night and pray with him. But once again, that's what happened here. They fell asleep while they were praying. And when they awoke, they were going to see something that they could never, ever have imagined. Now, why did Jesus choose Peter, James, and John? Well, I think if you follow the New Testament, it's pretty clear that Peter, James, and John were kind of the inner circle with Jesus. They were always with him. They stayed the closest to him. And as in any group um, that follows a particular leader, there are people that are closer and people that are in that next group. And it's just a pretty typical thing that happens. They were the closest ones to him. But Jesus needed three with him. Why did he need three? Because he knew it was going to take place. And he needed three eyewitnesses to what was going to take place. You see, in the Jewish culture, if there were two to three eyewitnesses, that confirmed the matter. And so Jesus needed three eyewitnesses with him to confirm what was about to take place. And it says he was transfigured before them. Verse 3, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, they had launderers back then. We don't think of that. It's like taking it to the dry cleaners. They had launderers. But he says, they became so white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Well, what does this mean, transfigured? What is this word actually even speaking about? The word itself is metamorpho. Metamorpho. And of course, we know we get that that uh, word metamorphose or metamorphosize from this particular Greek word. It means uh, <clears throat> transformed in form, transformed in form. So those of you guys that are Transformer fans, you kind of get this. It's transform, it changes shape, it changes form. That's what the word means. So to get a better feel for what this is really like, let's uh, all turn back to Exodus Genesis, Exodus, pretty easy to find. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, and I want you to look at verses 29 through 35. Exodus 34, 29 
through 35. It says, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, God. Verse 30, So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him. And Moses spoke to them. Verse 32, Afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So you see a similar experience with Moses, that his face shone like the sun. But there is a difference here. The radiance of Moses came from being in God's presence. It came from the outside in. Jesus' radiance was different. It came from within him himself because Jesus is God. The source of the radiance was he himself. Now, when we look at this, we go, wow, that's a miracle, isn't it? I mean, if you saw that, you'd be going, whoa, this is a miracle. But you know, I don't actually see it that way. I don't see that as the miracle. I think the miracle is just the opposite. I think the miracle is that Jesus, when he walked on this earth, could appear in any other form than the glory and the radiance that he always had, that he had with him before he came to earth, that his glory was concealed as he walked around on this earth. To me, that's the miracle. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form, morphe, the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form, morphe, of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as man. To me, that's the miracle, that God in the flesh veiled that attribute of himself. Why? Well, I think it would have been kind of weird if he'd have walked that way all the time, right? Uh, He had a mission to accomplish, and that mission was for us as men and women to relate to him and who he was, and that would have made it kind of difficult. But you know what's interesting? I think, I truly believe that Jesus looked forward to the time that his glory would be on display again permanently. Now, why do I believe that? Well, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus spoke to the Father and said this. It's in John 17, 1 through 5, if you want to look it up or take a look at it later. John 17, 1 through 5. Jesus said this, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, 
so that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And these three disciples get to see a glimpse of that glory. That word glory in Greek means doxa, and it's interesting because what it really means is praise, honor, and good opinion. Isn't that interesting? This radiance that comes out is praiseworthy, it's honorable, it's, it's of good opinion. This is important as we go along here. Now there's another amazing aspect of this event, and let's look at it in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What? Remember, we're investigating this. It's the who here. Who? Moses and Elijah? How is that possible? How is it possible? If you're these three disciples, you're looking at these three guys, and somehow they knew who they were. How is it possible that Jesus is standing here in glory and he's speaking to Moses and Elijah? Well, Luke helps us to understand exactly how this is possible, and this is important to you and I. In Luke 9, uh, verses 30 through 32, you might want to turn over there, Luke 9, 30 through 32. It says this, And behold, two men were talking with him, Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah. Now, this was recorded in three different Gospels. There's no question about this. Verse 31, Who appearing in glory, glory, doxa, the same word, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure. An interesting word there, the departure word there in Greek is exodus. Exodus. Gee, where have we heard that from before? It says they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we're looking at the facts here. We're digging in. We're saying, what happened? Well, this is what happened. This is who was there. And it says that they were appearing in glory. Now, I believe that this is a reference to the glorified state of our bodies when we are in the presence of the Lord. Whether we die on this earth and are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord or whether the rapture comes and we're immediately in the presence of the Lord. A glorified body, I believe, exactly like what Moses and Elijah had. Now, there can be some discussion about that, and there has been discussion about that. Um, but I think what we see here is that there's an equivalent to the glory that Jesus has and the glory that Moses and Elijah are in. I want you to see that that's a difference between the resurrected body. And again, that's something for you to take back now and study and email Pastor Chris and go, I don't agree with you, here's why. That's okay. But you might dig in and study and go, ooh, I get this. They were appearing in glory. Now, they were having this discussion. 
Luke tells us. And the discussion was about Jesus' departure. But I don't believe that that's the only reason that they were there. I mean, Jesus could have just visited them at some other time in some other place to have this discussion with them. I believe that they're there for a bigger purpose. And this purpose is to prove that there is life after death. If you listen to the Bible Answer Show on Friday, I challenged some people, if you have a question about whether there is life after death, come to the service this Sunday because we're going to have proof before our very eyes that there is life after death. How can I say that? Well, we have two people here, and they're not ghosts. They're human beings in glorified bodies, and Peter, James, and John recognized who they were. Since Mark is most likely writing what Peter told him, it shows that Peter definitely recognized these men and who they were. Peter himself recalled this whole experience in 2 Peter. It's in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory, doxa, from the Father, from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter recalled this event later, and he says, look, we're not making up tales here. We saw this happen. And for a Jewish person, if there were three people that saw the same thing, that confirmed the matter. Now, we might ask the question, well, wait here. Okay, so why Moses and, and why Elijah? Well, there's an important message being communicated here. You see, Moses represents the law and the completion of the law. Elijah represents the prophets. In in every comparison, everything in the Old Testament, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. But there's another reason here. You see, Moses, if you remember, Moses died. Now, nobody knew where he was buried. It says God buried him. But we know that Moses died. He physically died. So the fact that he's appearing here in glory proves the fact that there is life after death. Now, what about Elijah? Well, Elijah was different. Elijah, in a sense, represents those who will be caught up in the rapture because Elijah didn't die. It says he was caught up. It actually uses the term a whirlwind. He was caught up. We don't know exactly what that looks like. I, you know, sometimes have thought about that. You know, if you're standing there and you saw Elijah get caught up and he was in a whirlwind, it was like, whoa. But he was caught up. But yet, this was hundreds and hundreds of years before this event. So even if he was caught up alive, if there was any natural thing going on, he would be dead by now. So it proves that there is life beyond this grave. And that's a message that we all need to hear. And that's a message that we need to share. We challenged people on Friday. If you have a question about this, call. Maybe you're skeptical about this. Call. We have proof. For you. And I believe also that this makes a really strong case for Moses and Elijah 
as being the witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. In the book of Malachi, remember Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament, and it was the last words being spoken to the people of Israel before John the Baptist came on the scene. Uh, Why don't you turn back there, right before the book of Matthew, Malachi chapter 4, and follow along with me here. Malachi chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, it says this, For I behold the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evil doer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves, from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. And you can imagine what, what the people of Israel thought when they read this. But here's the key verses here. Verse 4 Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. And then he says, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Notice Moses and Elijah. This is, this is a pairing that takes place. Oftentimes, And if you look down into Mark in, in, in chapter 9 that we're studying and looking into verses 10 and 13, you're going to see that there is no doubt that one of these prophets that comes in Revelation is Elijah. So I believe Moses and Elijah. Now, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, bank everything on that. And there are people who may believe something different. But I think it makes a really good case for that. And it's uh, interesting to study and look at that. And as we mentioned earlier, Luke Let us in on what the three of these men were talking about. They were talking about Jesus' departure from the earth. Now, again, we're trying to dig in. We're investigating the transfiguration here. And I want you to picture yourself in that place. Can you imagine what this conversation must have been like? And, And I don't really like to speculate often on things that aren't specifically stated in the Bible, but I can't help but think that Jesus was explaining the whole plan of salvation to Moses and Elijah. Why do I believe that? Because it says, Luke said that he was explaining what he was about to accomplish. And what was he about to accomplish? He was about to accomplish salvation for you and for me and for Moses and for Elijah and for everyone who ever comes to faith in the Messiah. And I want you to think about this for a second. Think of how that must all come together for Moses and Elijah. Think of Moses going, oh man, you mean all these things you did through me. It was a picture of what was going to take place. Oh, now I understand. When I struck the rock, when I was only supposed to speak to it, now I get the picture that I messed up. Elijah, now I see why it was so important for me to take a stand for you, God, that there was no other God. There was no other gods to be put before you. Can you imagine that the things that they, they did and the things that they wrote about all of a sudden 
came together in in an unimaginable way to where they understood the whole plan of salvation. I don't think that they understood that when they were speaking and writing at that time. And I think now it came together for them. What an awesome conversation that must have been. Well, let's take a look now, and let's see what happens next. Verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer. Of course, it doesn't say anybody asked him anything. But he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Verse 8. All at once they looked around, and they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Well, again, as we're investigating this, we want to we find out everything we can. So if you'd flip over to Luke, flip over to Luke chapter 9. The parallel account of this in Luke. Luke chapter 9 Verses 32 through 36. We're going to get some more detail that's really important to understanding what took place here. Luke 9, 32. It says, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, the two men, Peter said to Jesus, Master, It is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Well, you can see now why they were startled and, and why they were frightened. I mean, picture how it is. Have you ever been, I mean, I, I love to do this. You know, I, I take naps. Yes, I do. I take naps. And you know, you ever been, I, actually, I sleep better in a nap than I ever do at nighttime. Any of you guys, do I get an amen to any of that? Yeah, those naps, boy, those are good, a 15-minute nap. But if something happens... When you're in the middle of that nap, if there's a loud noise or something happens, what happens to you? <laughs> you know, the whole, you, you know, you're breathing heavy and it's like, so you can imagine. They were startled and they were frightened. And then what did they see in front of them? I think we can gloss over this and they're seeing Jesus, but he's in this different form. And they're seeing Moses and Elijah. So they were startled and they were frightened. And Peter... In typical Peter fashion, by the way, Peter is the Bible character I relate to most. And those of you that are like me that have foot and mouth disease understand this. Um, Peter, in typical fashion, just reacted. Now, we tend to think of this as, you know, the whole purposes of this last statement here, listen to him, is, is just God rebuking Peter for speaking when he shouldn't have. And I think that that's very true. I think God is doing that, as Jesus did earlier when Peter spoke out of turn. Uh, He got rebuked. And the common theme is that Peter is rebuked for speaking out of turn. He should have remained quiet. And then so the typical application that you hear is, okay, that's for us. We should speak less and let Jesus speak more. Amen? Amen. And that's true. That's a good thought. And that, 
that's all completely true. We should do that. But, you know, I think we have to look at this a little bit differently. You know, Peter's intentions were not bad here. Think about it. He wakes up. He sees what's going on, the glory of Jesus, Moses and Elijah there, and he probably starts thinking in this foggy brain, startled state that he's in. Maybe I misunderstood what Jesus told us earlier about leaving and departing. Maybe I got something wrong. You know, that tends to happen when you wake suddenly from sleep and see something miraculous happening. So Peter's thinking quickly, and he's thinking, well, let's build some shelters. I see that they're about to leave. Wait, wait, wait. Stay here. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. I'm going to make these tabernacles for you. And of course, again, we, it makes us think of the Feast of Tabernacles and these shelters that were built. And so he's just saying, you know, let's make these shelters. Now, everybody says, well, he just wanted to hang out with them. Well, he didn't say anything about making a shelter for him or the other disciples, did he? I'm not sure that's what he was thinking. I think he was just saying, look, the kingdom is, is here now. Let's keep these guys here. Let's make these shelters for them. Well, no matter what Peter was thinking, he did something wrong. He did something unwittingly because he was placing Moses and Elijah basically on the same plane with Jesus. And you see, part of this whole event was to teach us that that was not the case. So he needed to be corrected, and God needed to remind him to listen and pay more attention to what Jesus says. He needed to pay more attention to the man who he called master. Remember, Jesus said he spoke plainly. That's what the Bible tells us when he told him about his Departure. He had spoken plainly. You know, Jesus, in his usual patient manner, once again explained to his disciples uh, right before the crucifixion what was going to take place in John 14, 2 through 4. John 14, 2 through 4. You might want to write that down. He said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so... I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. But we need to look at this event now, and we need to understand that there's a lot more than just the three disciples being prepared for what was going to take place, even though that was part of it. You see, God's using this event to show us the supremacy of Jesus Christ and why we need to listen to him. It shows that, that he's the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. In fact, in order for us to understand the law, we need to listen to what Jesus said. We cannot understand the law apart from what Jesus said. And in fact, the law was oftentimes misunderstood before it was explained by Jesus. And we need to hear Jesus if we want to comprehend what the prophets spoke. Why? Because as Jesus said, it's all about him. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus was rebuking the hypocritical Pharisees. And he said this to him. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. You see, they refuse to listen to Jesus and therefore they did not understand the law and they did not understand the prophets. He's showing the three disciples here that all of Scripture, all that they have read in the past, all that they have heard in the past needs to be filtered through his life and through his works and through his words. Our understanding of God cannot be explained apart from the life and the words of Jesus. Have you heard people that say, I believe in God, but I don't know about this Jesus guy. Have you ever heard that? I don't know about this born again stuff. I don't know about Jesus. Without Jesus, you cannot understand God. Jesus said, why do you say to me, show me the Father? He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And I don't believe that God is just singling out Peter in this rebuke. And I don't think he's singling out Peter when he says, listen to him. But he's also telling us, listen to Jesus. Listen to my beloved son. Now, is it possible, too, that God right here is bringing them back to what was said earlier in Mark 8? You remember a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Michael was teaching in Mark 8, right? And in that particular chapter, Jesus said to them, look, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. You must pick up the cross, and I'm saying the cross. He said your cross, but as Pastor Michael explained to you, it's the cross. You must pick up that cross and follow Jesus. You see, he's telling us that we have to lose our own selfish desires for the cause of Christ. But he also said that when we do that, we then thereby will find true life. Are you and I hearing those words today? Are we listening closely? You know, I know you know this, but I think in America it's, it's really hard to listen closely to anything, isn't it? We have so many distractions, so many distractions. It's hard for us to listen closely to anything. How do we know that? Well, you've tried to talk to your kids, and they're doing this. You're going, hello, I'm talking to you. Ah, yeah. Right? They're distracted. We're distracted by so many worldly things, music and television and movies and, and Disneyland and wherever. We're easily distracted. And because we live in an affluent society, we're even more distracted because we have the ability to go and do things and be distracted. And I'm not saying any of those things in their, themselves are, are wrong. I know some of you when I were doing this going, yeah, yeah, that's wrong. Okay, but not in itself wrong. But it's so easy for us to not really hear what Jesus is saying to you and, and to me. A similar thought to this is contained in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus said this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
You see, we can get distracted by the things of the world, but Jesus said if we want to call ourselves followers of Christ, if we want to call ourselves disciples, we need to listen first to what the requirements are to deny ourselves and to pick up that cross and follow him. That's the requirements to being a disciple. Are we heeding that call today? Are we listening to what Jesus said? And he told us, you know, it's really fruitless to live any other way. Do we hear that? You know, when you think about it, this event proves that what Jesus said is true. That if we lose our lives for his sake, we actually find life. And those of you that are in here that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, serving him and and following him with all your heart, you know what I'm talking about. You find true life. And we're going to find it even more. We have proved that by this event that takes place in our glorified state, the way Moses and Elijah were found. I think Moses and Elijah understood that now. You know, uh, what more evidence did they need? And what more evidence do we need after seeing this event and what took place? What more evidence do we need that there is glory ahead for you and I if we follow Jesus Christ? He's already given us a glimpse of that glory in this passage. And he promises, he promises that he will come again in that glory. Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31 says this, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Power and not just great glory, power and great glory. Okay, we get that mixed up. He'll be there. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And then he says again in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, write this one down. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, when Christ, who is our life, is he your life? When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's the promise you also will be revealed with him in glory. It's that same word, doxa. That's the promise. Do you want to be revealed in glory with Christ? Then today you want to listen to what Jesus says. You don't want to be ashamed of Jesus, and as Paul said, you don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. Jesus said that we need to put him first in our lives. First and foremost, that means above our family, our friends, material things, above anything else in our life. He is number one. Have you done that? Have you truly done that? If I were to sum this whole thing up, I would say it means that we need to be sold out to Jesus. Does that describe you and me today? Are we sold out to Jesus? Now, you know, of course, this isn't the only words of Jesus that we're to listen to. You know, we need to take heed of all that Jesus says, all that he says in the New Testament. Have you, have you ever done a red letter study? Do you have a red letter Bible? If you don't have one, get one. And just go through it and read the words of Jesus. What an amazing study that is to do. And, and I think if we all did that, and then if we all followed the words that Jesus said just in those red letters, I think revival would break out over the entire world. I really do. But are we listening to him? Now, one of the things that I I really love most about this passage is what happens after God the Father speaks. And we see this in the Matthew account. If you want to flip over there real quick, Matthew 17. 
Matthew 17, starting in verse 6. says this. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified when they heard the Father speaking. And Jesus came to them. Now get this. Underline this. Highlight it. Mark this. Verse 7. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Wow. He came to them and he touched them. He said, get up. Don't be afraid. And when he did that, they didn't see anybody else. Just Jesus. They didn't see fear anymore. They just saw Jesus. As Jesus touched them. And brothers and sisters in this building today, this is not for these three men alone. You know, if what you just heard about putting Jesus above your family, that's a hard thing to, to understand. Your friends, your job, everything. You might have got frightened. Maybe your knees were starting to buckle a little bit. The Father was speaking to you. Maybe you were thinking, I, I want to be sold out to Jesus, but I'm scared. I'm afraid to do it. I really want to adhere to the call that, that he's placed on my life, but I, I just don't know if I can give him everything. I don't know if I can give it all over to him. It's okay. Just tell him that. And he will come, and he will touch you, and he will say, don't be afraid. Get up. He will encourage you. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he will lift you up. There's nothing that he has ever asked you to do that he will not give you the power to do it. And, and I believe that this is what Jesus is saying to us, the church today. He's saying to us today, and God the Father is preceding that with listen to him. Listen to my beloved son. And this is what Jesus, I believe, is saying to you and to me Today, he's saying to you and me, do not be afraid, my son. Fear not, my daughter, for I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. He's saying to you today, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's saying to you today, love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. He's saying to you today, abide in me and I will abide in you. And as you abide in me, you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And if you ask anything in my name, meaning according to my will, it will be given to you. He's saying to you today, you shall, you shall be my witnesses in your neighborhood, in your job, in your school, wherever you are, you shall be my witnesses. He's saying that to you today. He's saying to you today, I will uphold you with my mighty hand the same way I upheld Moses in the wilderness. He's saying to you and I today, love one another the way that I have loved you. Freely you have received, freely give. And finally, he's saying to you today, though the road may be difficult, 
Finish the race and do not despair. For I will return and I will bring you unto myself and thus we shall be together for all eternity. This is what Jesus is saying to us, to you and to me, to the church today. Are we going to listen to him? Are we going to listen to him? As the worship team comes out, I just want to challenge you today. We're going to do something a little bit different. Um, As the worship team comes out and as they begin to play the closing song today, I'm going to ask you today, are you listening to Jesus Are you really hearing what he says? And there may be someone in here today that you have never yet before listened to Jesus, but today you heard him. You realize today that there is life after death. You realize today that Jesus is calling you unto himself to give your life over to him, and maybe you have never done that. Maybe you have never made a first-time commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive him as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you want to do that today. And and just in a moment here, The worship team is going to begin to play, and I'm going to come down front, and I'm going to ask you, if that's you today, I'm going to ask you to walk down to the front of this building, and I'm going to ask the rest of you, please do not get up and leave during the closing song. The Holy Spirit is at work this morning, and he may be speaking to someone, and you don't want to interrupt that work. And for those of you that you've been walking with the Lord, you're serving him, you've taken that call. You know what I'm talking about. You are all in. You are all in with Jesus. Be praying for someone else. Because I think there may be others here this morning. Yes, I'm a Christian. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. But I have not yet made him my Lord. You can't really make him your Lord. He is your Lord. But you haven't been acting in that way. You never really counted the cost. Maybe when you came to Christ, nobody told you that it meant you have to give your life up. That you have to... Serve him, that you have to worship him, that he has to be your all in all, that you have to put him above everything else in your life first. And you haven't yet made that decision to follow Christ in that way, even though you've been a Christian. I'm going to ask you, come down, walk down this aisle this morning, and I'm going to pray for you. Because today's the day to make that commitment. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to him? This is what he calls us to, no less than this. And maybe you need to make that decision today. Do not be afraid. If your knees are wobbling, that's okay. He's going to lift you up. He's going to carry you down here. He's going to walk with you just the way that he said he would. So as the worship team begins to play this song today, if that's you, either one of those cases, I'm going to ask that you would be brave and that you would be bold and you would say, today, Jesus, I'm all in. Today, it's no longer I'm just going to live for myself and just kind of fit you into my schedule. Today, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Wherever you call me, that's where I will go. Whatever you want me to do, that is what I want to do. Make that commitment today. Just I'll meet you down in the front.